O Lord, our God, we thank you for Holy Scripture. We acknowledge that your word is true. We acknowledge that your word is sufficient. We acknowledge, Lord, that we need no other thing except your written word as a yardstick standard to measure truth by. We thank you also for the gift of the Holy Spirit who not only inspired and bore along the writers of Scripture so that they wrote what they wrote of their own wills and knowledge. And yet, amazingly, at the same time, every word they wrote was exactly what you had ordained before the foundation of the world to be written. So we confess Holy Scripture is fully a human word and fully a divine word without error in all it teaches and an infallible guide. Lord, we acknowledge again that not only the Spirit is necessary for the giving of the written word, but for the interpretation and application of that word. And so now we pray, Lord, you would, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, give us to understand Scripture and give us to apply it. And help me, Lord, your unworthy servant, to be able to share the truth of Scripture with your people this day with clarity and succinctness for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want us to notice here in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, this is the, church, the angel of the church in Philadelphia is receiving this message from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the church of Philadelphia is one of two churches that are not condemned. However, in all of the positives in these letters, there's always embedded a little negative. If you'll notice over here in verse 11 on page 1917, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So there's a warning there. There's a negative in the middle of this big positive for the church in Philadelphia. Even as you look across the page in this negative church of Laodicea, there's a promise that the Lord Jesus promise, promises to the Christians who were living in Laodicea that he will take care of them if they're true believers. And he says, look at verse 19, Revelation 3, chapter 3, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. So we need to understand that while maybe a majority of those who belonged to the church of Laodicea did not know the Lord, yet there was a remnant in that church who did know the Lord. And again, those words in verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And that gives us a bit of an understanding of life. Sometimes troubling things happen to us. And I mentioned that the, my hearing aid stayed in my ear last night. Fortunately, I was able to fish out uh, part of it that came out. And I've got to fix it better uh, today. <laughs> but it's still working. Now, that's a minor thing, isn't it? It's a minor thing. What, what am I saying with that? I'm saying that in your life, you're going to have little minor annoyances and nuisances and whatnot. And... 
Yet God has a plan in the little minor things as well as in the big things. Things like shingles, things like cancer, things like heart disease. Those are the big things. But in all those things, God is working to shape us. Now when he says discipline, he doesn't mean that he's spanking us. He means he's training us. It's like an athlete. You know, I was never able to play high school football because I worked uh, in the summer. And I, I had long jobs. I worked, a, uh, I worked 66 hours a week uh, during the summer. And so I didn't have time to go practice football before school started. And that made a difference. I would have enjoyed uh, breaking some people. I'm sorry, no, I shouldn't have said that. But I didn't, I didn't get to play high school football for the reason that what? I was not there for the discipline. I was not there for the training. I was not there for running laps. Instead of sweating in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina on the football field, I sweated at Chapin Shell Service uh, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, waiting on cars, uh, driving and repairing flat tires and doing all this other stuff. I did plenty of sweating, but it wasn't the discipline. It wasn't the training. So whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he shapes us. Running laps is no fun. I've run some in my life. It's no fun. But that's how you become agile. Or take the greatest boxer in my living memory, the man that in the two times I gambled in my entire life, I bet against a man whose name used to be Cassius Clay. That man was a ballerina. Do you ever watch his footwork? Why was Ali, he later, when he became a Muslim, he changed his name to Muhammad Ali. Why was he such a great boxer? Because of his footwork. How did that happen? Did he just wake up one morning and learn to dance like that? No, it's discipline. So this is the thing, dear ones, in Jesus. The thing is that God is at work today on the 25th day of July, 2021, shaping your life, wanting you to be all you can be in Jesus Christ. He's for you. He's not against you. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. And when God shows you sin, immediately acknowledge it. Do you know the test of Christian maturity, someone told me, is the shortening of the time between knowing about a sin in your life and acknowledging it to God and asking His help. You know, we sin against the Lord regularly, every day, one way or another. And we're not always aware of it. But the moment we become aware of it, if we will not hold on to it and say, ain't no way I'm going to forgive that person. The moment that we know we're in sin, if we will confess it to the Lord, we'll experience His wonderful blessing. So the test of Christian maturity is how short is the time between learning about your sin and turning to the Lord for help from it. So going back now uh, to the church at Philadelphia, this amazing church, and look at what he says there uh, in verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. 
What is the key of David? What is the key to understanding this? The key to understanding any passage of Scripture is to try to find where it's first mentioned. And so for that, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22. And that's on page 1091. Page 1091. Isaiah 22 and verse 20. So here we have a problem with a man who has decided to enrich himself and hold on to power. Kind of sounds like the story that I read to Bennett this morning about Senator Starling. He is enriching himself and he wants to hold on to his power. And so at the length of this fairly long chapter that's fairly poetic... In verse 20, we have the summation of it. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to the jars. Now, what's this about? This is about this character who usurped his position. And that's over in verse 15, Isaiah 22, 15. This is what the Lord, the, uh, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, Go say to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the palace, What are you doing here and who gave you permission? And so on. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Throughout the history of God's people and throughout the history of the people of the world, there are always usurpers. As I study the Bible, as I study secular history, I discover something. There's never been a golden age on earth yet. Really. But you should read through places like Joshua and Judges and Ruth and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and Chronicles and through the prophets. And you come to one basic conclusion. Israel never obeyed the Lord. You think they did. They didn't. Their brief shining moments, very brief, very brief. You've got Solomon in the beginning the son of David, and he shows great promise until he ends up being the worst apostate in the history of the kings of Judah. Wow. It was all those women, Bob. Solomon ended up marrying all these women. And he had a whole bunch he wasn't married to that he had sort of his second-class wives, concubines. Why did he marry all those women? They were political alliances. Solomon didn't trust God. 
and he thought he had to become aligned with foreign pagan nations. So like Pharaoh's daughter, she brings in the worship of her hellish gods. And so it isn't long until Solomon has built, temp- built temples for wicked gods like Moloch and Chemosh, where people sacrifice their babies to these demon gods. By the way, let me say something here. Absolutely. Sometimes people will think, well, you know, the people who don't know the Lord, they, they know about God and they worship Him by means of the names of their gods. Well, let's try some of those. Let's see. I'm sure that the Moabites and the Ammonites were worshiping the true Lord, the true God, whose personal name is Yahweh, when they were worshiping Chemosh and Moloch. Don't you think? When they grabbed their little babies alive and burned them alive? Do you really believe that the pagans of this world were worshiping the true God under different names and different ways? That's nonsense. The pagans worshiped gods who were false. There was a reality behind those gods. The demonic principalities and powers that rebelled against God and joined with Satan. But there was never a golden age. Solomon leads Israel and Judah, because they were one at that point, into terrible apostasy. And at the end of his life, I think at the end of his life, he realized one day, I've been a fool. And Solomon wrote a verse in Ecclesiastes that basically, I'll paraphrase, there's no fool like an old fool. Solomon was an old fool. He knew, no longer knew how to hear, listen to counsel. He just stopped his ears. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. He couldn't receive correction. No fool like an old fool. Read Ecclesiastes. I spent a number of months translating every word of Ecclesiastes from Hebrew. And I was deeply impressed at what, what a wise old fool Solomon had become. No golden age. So what do you have here in Isaiah 22? What you have here in Isaiah 2 is a typical politician feathering his nest. You know how you've got to, what you've got to do when you go to Congress? There was a man who was born in the same hospital on the same day I was born. And he was swapped with me. And my mother saw him and said, this is not my baby. And so I got back where I was supposed to be. That man went on to become an attorney. And that man went on to be elected to Congress in 1980, taking office in January of 1981. And I dropped by and saw him uh, when I was invited to attend uh, a Rose Garden gathering at the White House when President Reagan announced a proposed amendment to the Constitution to allow children to pray in school. Did you know that President Reagan proposed such an, announce, uh, uh, an amendment? What happened to that? Nothing. Never forget this about politics. What politicians and political parties care about 
is where they put their capital. Because you don't have a lot of capital. You've got to spend it on what you really care about. Have you ever wondered why in this country we elect quote-unquote pro-life presidents and we have yet to overturn uh, January 22nd, uh, 1973, Roe v. Wade? You ever wondered why that hasn't happened? Have you ever wondered? Because politicians and political parties reveal to you what they stand for and what they pass. Never forget that. Politicians and political parties reveal what they really stand for by what they pass. And that amendment did not pass. But I was in the Rose Garden that day. And while I was there, when, when he made that announcement... Uh, there were a lot of the leaders of the religious right. I thought, what in the world am I doing here? I'm not. <laughs> I went to see the man I'd never met before. Shook his hand. Did he win re-election? No, he did not. Why did he not? You know why? Because if you want to win re-election... You've got to bring home the bacon. Just look at this community. How many good things, and I'm not attacking your political idol, how many good things did Wright Patman do for Texarkana, greater Texarkana? Do a lot? I think he did. I don't know. But I noticed some things named after him here and there, and he did get reelected. A friend told me that uh, the famous political congressman who was head of, uh, uh, of um, military armed services in the, in the Congress who represented Charleston, South Carolina, somebody said, Mendel, if you put another military installation in Charleston, you're going to sink it. What am I saying? The only way to be successful in re-election is to bring home the bacon. What does that mean? It means pork. Why do you think we have these gigantic budgets? Because we haven't passed a tight budget in I don't know when, probably ever. <laughs> Why are you going on all of that? I'm simply illustrating a truth. The truth is the Bible says things about politics. I'm not endorsing candidates. Probably if I lived in this area and he were still alive, I'd probably have voted for uh, Congressman Patman. I'm simply saying that what we look at in the Bible is a picture of the way things really are. And it is very rare, very rare to find truly godly, truly honest political leaders. I think the man that was swapped with me at birth was an honest and godly man. He ended up being an elder in the Presbyterian Church too. If you want to be elected again and again and again, little by little, here a little, there a little, you're going to sell your soul. I didn't say they're all going to hell. But you compromise and you become calloused. Wow. So that's what we have here with Shebna. Shebna had power. 
Shebna had authority and Shebna decided, hey, I'm not going to let all this power and authority be lost. I need something good. You know, I think he must have been part Egyptian. Look at what he was spending his power on. Look over there for a moment. Look at verse 16. What are you doing here and who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here? Hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock. Who were the people obsessed with a good tomb? You know that Sandy and I and her sister in 2008 climbed up inside the Great Pyramid of Giza. What was all that about? It was the high muckety-mucks, the pharaohs, who taught the people they were gods and had the people enslaved to them and delight to spend all they had serving the pharaoh with their sweat, their toil, their tears, and their deaths so that the pharaoh could have a fabulous tomb. Sounds like Shebna got his ideas from them. Look at verse 17. Beware the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, O you mighty man. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will remain. You disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from your office, and you will be ousted from your position. So if we look at history, dear ones, there's a longing in our hearts for an honest politician. There's a longing in our hearts for an honest leader. There's a longing in our heart for someone who will care about poor people, really care about them, and not simply talk about it. Really care. Not by votes, by pretending to be poor, but really do right by the poor and the needy. Really, seriously. So what do we see here? What we see here is a man who is a picture of the future king. Verse 20. And that is Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And he is taking Shebna's place. And so he receives the key of David. He's the one who opens and nobody closes. But what I want you to understand is this. From this background... Shebna is not the ultimate fulfillment of the honest and true politician. Shebna died in the course of time. But I want to tell you about my Jesus. My Jesus is the world's only honest, godly politician. Because the Lord Jesus cared about the people he was responsible for. And he was willing not only to lose an election, he was willing to be beaten in their place. He was willing to suffer in their place. He was willing to die on the cross for them. Jesus gave it all up for his constituents. So when we think about the key of David and this introduction to it, the key of David is a powerful thing. And, and it is delegated to Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Turning back for a moment 
to Revelation chapter 3, page 1916, where we read in verse 7, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Let's think about that just for a moment as we prepare for the sermon in two weeks. Because as I say, Sandy and I will be on the road uh, for, uh, and not get back here till Saturday night uh, to be here two weeks from today. Think about what he's saying. You see, the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of Eliakim. And the Lord Jesus has all power in heaven and earth. That's what he said before he left his disciples. He told us to go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has power. You've got to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is political. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He's president of presidents. He's prime minister of prime ministers. He's premier of premiers. He's chairman of chairmen. I want you to know there's no separation here between the rule of Christ and what we do on earth. I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Christian people should try to take power and make things happen and make people who are unsaved try to live like Christians. That's not what I'm saying. What am I saying? I'm saying that you represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and you have a message that changes people. You have a message that changes people. How do nations become Christian? They become Christian not because somebody says, you're going to do it my way. How did Jesus convert? Jesus converted by laying down his life. He shared the truth with others. He won people by prayer and sacrifice. How do we change America? How do we change Europe? The only way to change nations is to change individuals. It begins by Christian people realizing that at every moment of their lives, they have an opportunity to reach others with the gospel. I'm going to close with a simple illustration. Last night, we ate at a restaurant with a couple here in the church. And it was odd that we ended up at this restaurant. And it was very hot. And it was very uncomfortable. But at this little private room to our left was a man and a woman and a little boy. And in the course of things, because it's hard to hear... I struck up some conversations with them. And I told them the story that I may have mentioned to you. I know I sent it on the email list about the donut having to change the flat tire that we got a, something in our tire at St. Michael's Hospital on July the 4th. And after watching the, the air go down from 38 pounds a square inch to 22, we turned off. And there we were trying to fix that car. And Sandy prayed, Lord, send us somebody. And you know what happened? The Lord sent somebody. And the man came and he helped us. And I told the story before, but some of you didn't hear it. This is the story I told the lady and the man last night. And uh, he does everything. He takes off the old tire. He puts on the donut. 
And afterwards, I offered him money. I, I thanked him. He said, no, no. And so uh, then I said, well, let me ask you this. I said, Sandy and I have a ministry of praying for people. And I said, may we pray for you? His truck door's open. He's about 40 years old. Next to him was his wife. And he said those words. He said, yes. He said, I am a recovering alcoholic. And this is all new to me. And it is really, really hard. And I have hurt my wife so much in the past. She's right there. And so Sandy and I laid hands on his shoulders. She on one shoulder, I on the other. And we prayed, and there wasn't a dry in the house. And then they left and drove down to Lake Charles. Oh, I told this story to the lady next to me last night. And you know what she said to me afterwards? She said, I think that their divine appointments, that's what she said to me, I think they're divine appointments. I found out their little grandson's mother had died and she and her husband been taking care of him. And they brought him here to the Texarkana area to return him to his father who is now remarried. And there was a lot of pain in their hearts. We had no idea. And I asked her if I could pray for her and she said, yes. She said, I was raised in a, she named a denomination, and she described it as an ultra-conservative, legalistic, mean-spirited church. I won't name names to protect the guilty. Anyhow, the point is, I prayed for her. I prayed for her earnestly. Her name is Pam. You can pray for Pam if you like, because God touched her right then and there in that restaurant, and she teared up. She teared up. And you can pray for her little boy, her little grandson named Caden. What am I saying, dear ones, as I close? I'm saying this. We've a story to tell to the nations. We've a story to tell to the nations. How many opportunities do you and I have every day to share Jesus with somebody? Listen, evangelism isn't hard. Evangelism is just being yourself. Evangelism isn't hard. You don't have to memorize how to do this and how to do that. Just pray. Ask God to guide you. And I found over the years, as I've trusted God to hear and answer prayer, most people have never been prayed for by somebody who believes there's a person on the other end of the line. What I mean by that? Most people have never prayed with somebody who really and truly believed when she was praying or he was praying that God was really listening and wanting to hear and wanting to do what they were asking God to do. Most people have never prayed with somebody like that. Why don't you ask God to help you? Hear and answer your prayers. Believe God! You know, we're, we're immersed with practical atheism in this country. I'm not talking about the atheists. I'm not talking about the seculars. I'm talking about Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and so on, and Catholics. We've come to believe that the world is sort of divided into a natural and an unnatural and never the two meet. 
We've come to believe that the promises of God were only good in the time of the New Testament, and they're not any, they're not any good anymore. To hell with such an idea. That's where it came from. That's where it came from. That's where it came from. That when the Bible was completed, God's promises are no good anymore? That's a doctrine of demons. As many as may be the promises of God. In Jesus Christ, they are yea, and in Him, amen. Start believing it. I remember the day in my office when I was serving my church in Alexandria, Louisiana, and I read a commentary one afternoon about expecting answers when we pray. And what I said in my mind is, I don't believe that. And when I realized what I had thought out loud in my brain, I was rebuked. I said, Lord, how did I come up with such a twisted idea? Listen, dear ones, if we pray with no expectation of, of God hearing us, we're never going to get anything. It's all, oh, well, okay, I know prayer's a duty. You know, when I began to take seriously the promise of God and pray and to realize that God opens and He shuts, when God opens, no one can shut. When He shuts, no one can open. I began to receive things from God. And over the years, I have a testimony. That testimony grows and develops, and I write things down. And that's why I praised God on July the 4th, Sunday afternoon, for getting some kind of broken part of a box cutter in my tire at St. Michael's Hospital. Because God had a divine appointment. A man who was struggling as a new recovering alcoholic who had abused his wife and wounded her deeply. He had a need. And I just say, well, God, flatten my tire any day. Send me somebody that I can share Jesus with. And so last night, I shared this with Pam. And she wept. You know, that's how you change the world. You don't have to memorize Bill Bright's four spiritual laws or God's simple plan of salvation or this or that or the other. Fact of the matter is in America, it used to be that virtually everyone in the world, in the United States, knew something of the nature of the gospel. But you know what they don't know? Hello? Lord, I'm here. That's what they don't know. They don't know that there is a God in heaven who hears and answers prayer. And that's how people are won to Christ. The most effective evangelism in the world is not done right here. It's not with an altar call. It's by challenging people to believe the promises of God. Because when we do... We begin to seek Him, and when we seek Him, we will always find Him. And He'll change us, and He'll use us to change others. So, dear ones, if you're not going to do that, just give up, because America's done for. It is done for. And all of the politicians in the entire country will never change this country and make it right. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can. You're wasting your money to give to the Republican Party. You're wasting your money to give to the Democratic Party. Not, 
except to maybe buy a, an opportunity to get to meet a politician and talk to him, share Jesus with him. Wasting your money to work for a political party, unless you're going to use it as an opportunity to share Jesus. So that's the only hope for America. That's the only hope for your family. That's the only hope for the Christian church. Dear ones, believe the gospel. Believe the Bible. Trust in Christ and share him with others as God opens a door. Strange thing. Little Japanese restaurant. God opened a door of faith for a woman who had been raised in a super strict home but had never known the love of Christ in a true and authentic way. Let's pray. Lord, bless Trinity Church. Lord, there's nothing wrong with Trinity Church that a good dose of boldness to share Jesus with others in a non-threatening way Lord, I've prayed with Muslims. I've had Muslims in my home. I've had two imams in my home from Egypt who were trained by the most radical sect of Islam in Saudi Arabia. And I've prayed with them. Lord, it's never a threat. It's never a threat if we're gentle and ask God to touch people. Lord, would you teach us how to do the simple things so that evangelism becomes for us a way of life for Jesus' sake. And if there's anybody here who's never truly put his trust in Christ, if there's anyone here today who has never come truly to believe that you hear and answer prayer, let that be for her today, the beginning of a new day. In Jesus' name, amen.